Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, sharing evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to improve your performance. Well, today, folks, we have a fantastic rewind episode for you, where I rewind the tapes to bring you highlights from six of the best researchers and sports scientists on the topic of caffeine and athletic performance and body composition. I love coffee. A lot of my listeners love coffee. Heck, almost everyone loves coffee. So I think this is going to be a pretty popular episode. And in this episode, you're going to hear from six leading experts. Jozo Gurdjic will talk about the effects of caffeine on resistance training. Prof. Stu Phillips on the benefits of caffeine supplementation and the underlying mechanisms of how it likely provides its ergogenic benefits. Dr. Nancy Guest will share her research on genetics and caffeine metabolism. Are you a slow, ultra-slow, or fast caffeine metabolizer, and what does that mean for your practice? From there, Dr. Eric Helms will discuss how caffeine impacts hypertrophy and body composition changes in bodybuilders. Dr. Andrew Chappelle from the UK will share his insights from a study that he's done in elite British bodybuilders, of course being a former champion himself. And then Dr. Ian Dunican in Australia will discuss the practices of caffeine consumption in elite rugby and the impacts it potentially has on things like sleep. The last little snippet here in this Rewind episode is from season one and my good friends at Pilot Coffee Roasters in Toronto. I revisit here a really fun interview where Pilot will discuss the decaf coffee modern processing methods. So I think for a lot of coffee geeks out there, I think you'll enjoy that little snippet. Terrific. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash S3E29. If you're interested in more, I've also included the links to the full episodes in the show notes. Fantastic. This episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. We've recently hit the bestseller lists in Canada, the US, and the UK on Amazon in the sports medicine, sports training, and physical medicine and rehab categories. So thank you, everyone listening in for the support. If you haven't picked up a copy yet, it's available at all local booksellers as well. And of course, you can check out all the expert blurbs and insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And please keep sharing on social media using the hashtag GoPeak, G-O-P-E-A-K. This episode is also sponsored by my good friends at Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's rewind the tapes and talk caffeine. Enjoy. Looking forward to talking caffeine and resistance training here today. And of course, yeah, likewise. 
of course, many beverages and foods do contain caffeine, but obviously, you know, coffee is sort of far and away the most popular, I believe, second only to water as the most widely consumed beverage. Um, and apparently, I was reading about 1.6 billion cups of coffee consumed every single day, which is sort of mind-boggling. Um, so if we jump in here and talk the effects of caffeine on resistance training, can you discuss how caffeine might impact things like maximal strength and muscle endurance? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we, we just recently published a review paper on the effects of caffeine in resistance exercise. And I've also published a few original papers prior to this one. And basically from the current evidence, it seems that caffeine increases both strength and muscular endurance in resistance exercise, as well as uh, muscular power. So caffeine, um, some of the mechanisms by which caffeine can increase uh, performance in resistance exercise seem to predominantly relate to the effects of caffeine on uh, motor unit recruitment. So there's actually one really cool paper that examined this topic. Uh, it was published a couple of years ago. And they tested the effects. Uh, they tested uh, uh, motor unit recruitment uh, before the ingestion of caffeine, and after uh, the, inge the ingestion of caffeine. And it showed that basically the recruitment of motor units is increased by around ten percent. Interesting. And, yeah, and that increase in motor unit recruitment is probably uh, the primary reason, the primary mechanism that might explain the effects of caffeine on strength. Now, when we talk about the percent change or the effect of magnitude of the effect, it's not uh, quite large. It's, uh, it's actually pretty small. Uh, so in our study where we tested the effects of caffeine on upper and lower body strength, the increase in strength was around 3%. Uh, with quite quite a high dose, it was a dose of six milligrams per kilogram. So while caffeine can definitely increase performance in resist in the resistance exercise, the effect uh, magnitude might not be all that high. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the population. Three percent uh, can be a lot, obviously, in the more um, elite and trained individuals. Is there any? Is it similar in terms of the changes in power with the caffeine? In terms of the yeah, effect? That, yeah, in, in general, it seems that the effect of caffeine is somewhat greater on power. Um, so the effect of caffeine might be more on increasing contraction velocity than maximal force production. With that being said, there's only a couple of studies that examined power in resistance exercise. So I think there's only four. Um, the majority of studies examined the effects of, of caffeine on strength. And uh, yeah, so... The, the effect might be a bit greater on power and on endurance than on strength in resistance exercise. And amongst those, when we look at differences between lower body and upper body exercises, are there uh, tangible differences there, whether it's maximal strength, power with, with caffeine? Yeah, so uh, like historically, it has been suggested that the effects of caffeine seem to predominantly manifest in the lower body. So that study that I talked about, about uh, motor unit recruitment, so they examined percentage of motor unit recruitment in the quads and in the elbow flexors. And before the ingestion of caffeine, uh, the percent of motor unit recruitment in the quads is around 85%. But in the elbow flexors, it's around 
97, 98%. So when you ingest caffeine, there's a much uh, more greater uh, area for improvement in the lower body because the percentage of motor, um, percentage of motor unit recruitment uh, in the lower body is not towards, the, uh, towards its maximal values, while in the upper body it seems that it is. So there was one meta-analysis published in 2010, and they observed that the effects of caffeine predominantly manifest in the, in the lower body, but not in the upper body musculature. Um, in yeah. that study that we, that we did uh, a couple of years back, we also tested the effects of caffeine on upper body and lower body strength. We used the uh, back squat exercise and bench press, and there was a significant increase in lower body strength. Uh, and then a the, uh, couple of months back, we actually did a meta-analysis on the effects of caffeine, focusing only on 1RM tests. And in that meta-analysis, uh, we actually found the opposite when we pulled all of the studies. So meta-analysis means that we uh, reviewed the evidence and pulled the studies that examined uh, the effects of caffeine on a specific topic. So we looked at 1RM strength. And the effects of, uh, seem to be greater in the upper body, which is in contrast to the made analysis from 2010. So it's kind of still tricky to say. Um, yeah, I imagine. And, and for yourself, in terms of, um, you know, what would your opinion be in terms of what might be happening there between those two conflicting results? And does it depend on, you know, the individuals in the population, whether we're talking sort of untrained individuals versus, you know, team sport athletes yeah. versus even, you know, let's say power lifters or something. Yeah, would get, uh, my thoughts are that uh, uh, there's not a lot of studies that compare directly both uh, upper and lower body strength tests. And when you kind of, when you pull uh, made analysis that examined, uh, when you pull studies in a made analysis that examined different strength tests, sometimes you can get some unpredictable results. Um, so my thoughts on it are that probably caffeine can increase both upper and lower body strength, but the magnitude of the effect is probably lower for lower, lower body strength. Um, as far as the training st status goes, I'm not, uh, I'm not too convinced that the effects differ between trained and untrained individuals. Uh, it is commonly suggested that the effects of caffeine are predominantly in uh, trained lifters, but there's only one study that, that included both trained and untrained, and they actually found the opposite. So caffeine increased strength in the untrained individuals, but not in the trained individuals. Interesting. So yeah, so lots to be parsed out then. So yeah, it's a lot of conflicting findings. So. And what about the rate of perceived exertion? Obviously, in endurance athletes, we see this as a significant benefit. Does that also translate as well with resistance training and caffeine? Yeah, so uh, there is pretty good evidence suggesting that the... Uh, performance-enhancing effects of caffeine in aerobic exercise are predominantly due to the effects of caffeine on reducing RPE, or rating of perceived exertion. Um, but in, in resistance exercise, I don't honestly think so. We, in our study that we did, we actually observed a, a decrease in RPE, which was coupled with uh, an increase in strength, suggesting that RPE might uh, also contribute to the performance-enhancing effects in resistance exercise. But I think predominantly it, uh, the effects of caffeine are on motor unit recruitment in resistance exercise. Um, RPE, reductions in RPE might contribute to the performance enhancing effects, but uh, I, I would say the jury is still out on that one. It's still pretty unclear. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And 
you know, I previously had Nancy Guest on in uh, season one of the podcast talking about her research in caffeine and endurance athletes. Um, and of course, that you know, the, the ability to metabolize caffeine, the, obviously the main enzyme responsible for caffeine metabolism, cytochrome P450, that CYP182 gene, which accounts for, you know, 95% or so of the caffeine clearance. And she, she found that there was what she called ultra-slow metabolizers that actually had a negative impact of caffeine on their endurance performance. Do you think that's a phenomenon that might exist as well with resistance-trained athletes? Yeah, there's actually one study just recently published. They, they showed a similar effect. But with that being said, uh, they, both, both of these studies used a similar uh, caffeine supplementation protocol. So they administered caffeine 60 minutes prior to exercise. So if, if you have slow metabolizers of caffeine, maybe they still can increase their performance by supplementing with caffeine. But uh, they just might need to ingest caffeine like 90 minutes before exercise or two hours before exercise. Uh, and that's an area that still needs to be being investigated, obviously. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of, when, when, when we say that, that there's not non-responders to caffeine, I'm kind of skeptical of that because I think everybody can ultimately respond. Uh, only the matter is the optimal pr- protocol for the individual. Absolutely, yeah. It is amazing how that individualization and that that rate of metabolizing caffeine is probably a key part of this whole story. And as you mentioned, the timing of it becomes then important, whether it's 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And before before we dive into that, could you talk a little bit as well about the ability of um, caffeine to impact pain perception? Because obviously training intensely elicits a lot of pain. Um, Was there any evidence there in your uh, review on resistance exercise? Yeah. So caffeine, when ingested, caffeine binds to the adenosine receptors. Um, so after binding, caffeine can basically blunt uh, pain. And therefore, it's all also very common in uh, pain relief medications. So uh, in resistance exercise, uh, it doesn't seem like that a decrease in pain perception contributes to the performance-enhancing effects. Um, there are several studies that examine this, and you see performance increases in resistance exercise in terms of increased strength or increased endurance, and there's no effect on pain perception. In our study, we actually saw a decrease in pain perception, but there was no effect on the improvements in the upper body strength. So the evidence kind of, I don't think that that it uh, contributes to it, but uh, we, we definitely need more studies on it. And the problem is the ways that we currently measure pain perception. We, we use um, subjective scales, which mm-hmm. may not be completely, uh, may not be the, the best option. I'm not sure what the best option would be, but they're kind of maybe not as accurate as some, uh, uh, as some other models. Yeah, obviously, caffeine being so uh, deeply embedded in, in sport and everyone's mind in terms of performance. So, you know, can you maybe talk about some of the different mechanisms on how it's actually exerting some of those effects? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that caffeine's undergone. I mean, it's it, it's it's been around for the uh, a long period of time. There's a lot of uh, mechanisms on uh, how it might work. I think for a long time, people were convinced that it increased uh, lipolysis, so breakdown of fat tissue, and that that somehow spared muscle glycogen. I, I think most people now uh, 
Uh, if they agree with that mechanism, they would agree that it's not the most prevalent mechanism, that there actually may be something direct uh, to do with caffeine acting on the muscle per se. But most of caffeine's effects really come uh, from the central nervous system stimulation and the uh, arousal that uh, accompanies that that you know a lot of us enjoy in the morning when we wake up and uh, you know kind of get the day going. But for an athlete, it 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 really uh, does seem to suggest that um, that's where the most of the performance adaptations occur. Now, I will say this, and it's really interesting actually that. Uh, Nancy Guest, who uh, is a dietitian of some uh, fame in this area, just published a paper in uh, Medicine, Science, Sports, and Exercise showing that actually your, your genotype, so what types of genes you have for your ability to be able to metabolize caffeine, some, somehow uh, determine the fact of whether you're going to benefit or not. So it's, it's worth looking into. For some people, they get a bit of a buzz from coffee, but they don't get a huge performance boost uh, for some people they get a moderate boost and then uh, other people it's like you know it's like rocket fuel but it seems to be the one of the most consistent performance boosters that we came across yeah it's fascinating stuff uh had nancy on the podcast last year and she'll be coming back to talk about some of our new research and it's uh, it's really interesting that genetic side of things and um, yeah there you go i mean it, you know the, there's the other layer that um you know, I, I think we're beginning to sort of peel back and, you know, Nancy and uh, Ahmed's research uh, down at UFP are uh, right at the hotbed of sort of looking at some of these genetic polymorphisms and their role. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, <laughs> you know, as much as we know, then uh, we're beginning to learn more and more about something different as well. And how do some of the uh, dosing strategies potentially differ then if you're more endurance-based out of exercise versus something like repeated sprints when talking about caffeine? Yeah, you know, I think when you look at caffeine historically, you're really looking um, at doses when people sort of, I think, thought in the lab, you know, we really need to see an effect. And so there are doses as high as nine milligrams, uh, you know, uh, per kilogram uh, body weight, for example. And I think a lot of work now suggests that you can get down to probably as low as between one to three milligrams per, uh, per kilogram. And again, this is the, the pure caffeine form, uh, so not not a cup of coffee. And um, I don't know that it differs an awful lot between, uh, you know, with with each respective sport, but it appears that, you know, it's a pretty low threshold. And I think that there was a concept for a while that if you were a habitual caffeine consumer, that you needed to withdraw yourself from caffeine. And, and again, most of the recent research has suggested that's, that's not the case. Uh, so you don't have to skip that cup of coffee uh, for it to have its benefit or, or, or take your caffeine capsule or, or whatever it is. So um, it's a pretty consistent uh, effect. And I, I think settling around three milligrams per, per kilo body weight is really the, the dose that's sort of a sweet spot. Yeah, definitely as folks get up towards five or six even, you start to see you know, potentially some of the effects of, of, of getting too much caffeine in the system. And of course, you guys write about the pairing caffeine with carbohydrates during exercise. You know, why is that so important? Yeah, you know, that, that work comes, uh, a lot of that comes from Louise Burke and her work down at the Australian Sport. And uh, I think the carbohydrate provision stories have uh, been out there for a long time. And really what you're, what you're doing is providing 
yourself with an alternative fuel source from a, if you like liver standpoint. So you're you're acting as a surrogate liver. Um, and the provision of caffeine yeah, yeah, used to be thought of as just a pre-exercise strategy, but sure, certainly during exercise is a time when uh, Louise and her crew uh, were looking at cyclists and actually found that it, they got a little performance boost um, even during the event as well. So the, the old story was that the cyclists were drinking, you know, defizzed uh, Coke yeah. Um, yeah. and saying, hey, we're getting, you know, we're getting a lift from this. And then, you, you know, Louise and her crew said, well, it's, it's the sugar that's in the Coke. Um, but there's, you know, not an insubstantial amount of caffeine that goes along with that. So uh, lo and behold, uh, again, the anecdotal field test cyclists were, were uh, feeding back turned out to be uh, when you when they tested it in the lab that exactly the way things were working so there's uh, you know practice informed science and science that goes back and informs practice in terms of performance people are um, obviously coffee and, and pre-workouts and things are just massively popular um, and, and and you know bulk of evidence and then in the research in terms of the effectiveness but in terms of this slow versus quick metabolizer what are we seeing in athletes because we have we most general athletes send out this idea that caffeine's always going to be good for everyone now you know is that mm-hmm. the case or can you tell us a little bit about your research there sure yeah and sorry to back up i didn't quite answer your last question uh so as far as um uh, determining fast and slow metabolism. Remember I said there's sort of three combinations of pairs. Well, sometimes we can see that two of those pairs will uh, have the same uh, phenotype. And phenotype is something that we can measure, that we can see. So we see that two of those uh, letter pairs, or we call them genotypes, uh, actually result in slow metabolism of caffeine. And then um, the one uh, fast metabolizers, which is 50% of the population, uh, results in in, um, uh, the fast metabolism of caffeine. So, um, but what's interesting is that in my research, I found that we had 50% of my population was a fast metabolizer. Then about 40% were moderately slow metabolizers. So again, that's one of those three pairs. Mm -hmm. And then I found that 10% or it was actually about 8%, were uh, ultra-slow metabolizers. So even though uh, the rest of the research that's related to uh, kidney function or glucose tolerance or heart attack risk, they tended to combine the two genotypes and classify them as slow metabolizers. But I found a difference in the slow and the ultra-slow as far as performance. So just to back up to tell you a a little bit about my study, uh, I recruited over 100 athletes. Uh, These were all male athletes because uh, um, the oral contraceptive uh, complicates things when we do caffeine and exercise research, as well as the time of the month for females. And uh, so these were multi-sport athletes. So I had uh, from boxers to rugby players to cross-country skiers to marathoners to powerlifters, you know, the whole gamut. And uh, so I had them come into the lab and uh, day one, do their baseline data and do a VO2 max test for aerobic capacity. And then on visits two, three, and four, they were randomized to, uh, to ingest either placebo 
or a moderate dose of caffeine, which was two milligrams per kilogram of body weight, or a higher dose, which was four milligrams. Now, these are both those doses are moderately low compared to a lot of the research we see is, is six milligrams per kilogram. That's unnecessary, it's too high, and the research is really shifting that really nobody needs more than four or five milligrams. Because that so, used to be the red line was the six, right? Yeah, but you're saying now we're even bringing it down because that's, uh, yeah, that's just too high. Exactly. And we really are not seeing any difference between four or six milligrams per kilogram. So nobody needs to be doing these higher doses. And and this is an important concept in uh, training and working with athletes because we have the, the sleep issues that come up. And then we have people, uh, athletes training at night that are trying to get to sleep and they're taking over-the-counter sleep aids or perhaps prescription prescription sleep aids and we have this cycle that can be very harmful and so we want to see what is the lowest effective dose that we can use that is going to have that's going to mitigate mitigate uh, these sleep issues Um, and and also uh, lower the risk to your heart health if you may have that genetic predisposition yeah so yeah so back to the uh, research so what Uh, What I did is I looked at four different parameters of exercise performance, power, strength, anaerobic capacity, and aerobic capacity. So the analyses I've most recently done looked at a 10-kilometer time trial, which was the aerobic capacity. And I found that the fast metabolizers, which was 50% of my athletes, had a a very clear response uh, to caffeine where they were much faster uh, by about 1.2 minutes in a a 19 minute time trial. So the average time uh, for the 10 kilometers, 18 to 19 minutes. So 1.2 minutes is huge. That's That's a lot, yeah, wow. Six or 7%. And then the moderately slow metabolizers, which was about uh, a a little over 40% of, of, um, or 43%, of the uh, population, they had uh, a non, they had a slight benefit, but it wasn't significant. So they're really not responding very well to the caffeine. And then what's interesting, even though I only had 8% of my subjects as ultra slow metabolizers, they actually did worse on caffeine. So when we looked at that 10 kilometer time trial, they actually increased their time by 2.5 minutes when they took caffeine. And that's huge. I mean, they did, you know, over 10% worse when they when they took caffeine compared to when they did this same time trial on placebo. And what was and the timing again? Sorry, Nancy. How long before the, the run were they doing that? The caffeine uh, dose? Taking the caffeine? Yeah. Yeah, 60 minutes. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So uh, so we did um, a few exercises, a few other tests before the, the time trial. So the time trial was the fourth exercise test. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so everyone was at about... Um, at about between 60 and 90 minutes. Okay. Um, and so this is where we see that caffeine is definitely in the body. It's definitely having an effect. Um, and uh, yeah, and then so uh, so basically caffeine reaches sort of its peak uh, blood level values between 45 and 90 minutes. But people do start feeling the effects of caffeine usually after about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you're ever having a conversation with someone after they've had a coffee, it's sort of at that 15, 20 minutes where people get really chatty. And that's sort of the caffeine kicking in. Perfect. Um, or good- like me, I'm just, you know, chatty right off the bat. So Awesome. Even extra bonus from that. That's a good uh, conference tip for people, you know, get someone drinking the coffee and just hang out with them and get to that 15 minute mark. And all of a sudden the chats yeah. will be flowing. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So this is the implications of this research is that. Um, 
you know, by and large, we not only want to individualize and customize our diets for athletes to improve their performance, but we certainly want to be cautious with supplements. And so with all the ergogenic aids out there, or the performance enhancers, we want to be careful. Does this athlete really need it? Is it safe? Is it going to be effective? And because we see the research is reported in means, we don't see individual raw data. Uh, we don't really know what athlete did worse, what athlete did better. We just see the average response of a study that let's say looked at 50 athletes. On average, they improved when they took creatine or beta alanine or caffeine, but we don't know. Some of those athletes might've done worse. And so we really need to look in, the devil's in the details in this research where we wanna see the individual data and genetics is who the individual is. And so if we can start customizing our supplement regimes, this is uh, of course, obviously gonna be a, a benefit to the athletes um, for health uh, as well as uh, for their performance in the long run. And so I think that's really the future uh, of nutrigenomics and being able to customize is uh, also customizing the, those supplements. And you know what, don't take it if you don't need it. We, you know, we wanna minimize that. Absolutely. I've got so many uh, so many questions here that I want to fire at you. Now, in terms sure. of your research, you had the, the power and the strength athletes. Now, I know traditionally, um, we you know it's been shown that caffeine's more supportive of work capacity and not so much that one rep max um, type efforts. So, in your data and your in your study there, in terms of power and strength, what did uh, what were the findings? Uh, well, I actually have not looked at the power and strength yet. Uh, so that's that'll be coming out in the next few months. I'm just sort of focusing on the endurance aspect because that's where the the body of the literature uh, looks positive, where we see that in endurance athletes, that's where caffeine seems to be most effective. And uh, so even though I had power athletes, I still put them through these endurance tests. And remember that they were all testing against themselves. So we controlled for all the individual characteristics because each athlete took all three uh, doses, either zero, two, or four milligrams, and they competed against themselves. And so that we, you know, I, I'm going to, um, uh, so we can say that the, the caffeine uh, was a benefit no matter what type you of athlete you were as far as endurance. So my cyclists did better, my, my boxers did better, uh, you know, my rugby players did better when they were a fast metabolizer, no matter what their sport background. Gotcha. That's really interesting. And I love, I love the little teaser there. That's great as well. We're going to keep everyone on the edge of their seats for another few months and we'll get you back uh, yeah. to talk about the strength and the power. Now, a few questions that I know people tend to ask around, like habituation is, is a major one. If an athlete is used to drinking three or four cups a day, are they still getting that performance benefit? Are they better off to taper off before competition and then add it back in? What are your thoughts there? Well, I don't think we know conclusively. I can say, uh, because I've been writing up my literature review um, for my manuscripts and for my thesis, uh, there are uh, four uh, studies out there that, that did look at habituation, did not find an association, uh, you know, whether an athlete was consuming caffeine or coffee daily or not, they still seem to get uh, the performance enhancement or they didn't, gotcha. it didn't yeah. matter. And okay. then um, as far as my research, I did not see an association. And now, you know, this is more than 100 athletes, and I didn't see that their habituation uh, affected uh, the outcomes. I know there was a recent study published last year that did find this, mm -hmm. um, and I believe there's one other. So, you know, the bulk of the evidence shows that habituation 
uh, you know, doesn't seem to play a role. But again, I bring this back to genetics because we know that people also self-regulate their caffeine caffeine intake. Uh, and due to the, the way they feel on caffeine, whether it's anxiety or feeling jittery, or if they have serious withdrawal effects. So we know we've identified the genes that show how serious your withdrawal will be. So that wow. plays a role in habituation. So if you can skip drinking coffee for three days and be just fine, um, that might be your lifestyle. Someday you're just like, oh, I didn't have coffee today. Other people that have severe withdrawal, they know when, when they their morning coffee is an hour late because they start getting a headache. And some people uh, actually really can't get over that withdrawal effect um, for a few weeks. And, um, you know, even, even evidence of up to six months to completely clear yourself uh, of all withdrawal effects. If we kind of shift gears and onto the supplement side of things, like in terms of supplementation for bodybuilding, physique-oriented trainees, you know, what are sort of the ones in terms of the evidence base that are really showing some benefit um, for, for bodybuilders? That's a great question. And you know, the um, the supplement industry has always been part and parcel with the bodybuilding industry. And, and so much of the the funding to athletes and coaches and so much of the income and, and support for shows and support for federations is, is tied into the supplement industry. So it's no surprise that the importance of supplements are very much overblown in the bodybuilding community. I remember when I started out as an athlete, um, there was basically like three pillars that I thought, you know, supplements, training and nutrition. And, and All they're equal, almost, right? <laughs> right, exactly. They're almost seen as equal. And, and you know, maybe on, on the, uh, the untested side of the sport where, where drug use at a certain level is obligatory to be successful, uh, you, you could make that argument if supplements are replaced with, you know, drugs. But for the natural bodybuilder or for someone who isn't interested in going that route, um, supplements make up a very, very small piece of the puzzle. Uh, and even the, the most tried and true time-tested supplements that do have an impact on variables that are relevant to bodybuilders like, say, creatine, aren't going to make such a difference that you always even notice it. Um, and, and, and that, but they'd still do something. It's just below the threshold to which we can perceive it uh, consistently. Um, some people take creatine and don't notice it, you know. Uh, but we know that very, very consistently in the literature, you know, creatine monohydrate seems to improve not only uh, muscular performance but also lean body mass. Um, but there's others too. You know, the, uh, it hasn't changed a lot over the years, but some emerge and then some, you know, fall under scrutiny and, and kind of collapse as, as the good research is done. But for the most part, uh, we know that creatine and caffeine are, are, are probably the most consistent uh, potential supplements to aid in performance. Um, you know, caffeine has a number of beneficial effects that are useful to bodybuilders. It suppresses tiredness, which can be very helpful when you're lethargic from dieting um, and have to go train. And at higher dosages, it can improve performance. Uh, typically, this is more consistent in muscular endurance tests, but it also does seem to improve strength at higher doses, just less consistently. And more often, it seems to be in the lower body versus the upper body, uh, which might be because it, it – I, th I think this is because it's also an analgesic to some degree. And training legs is just hard. <laughs> it hurts. Just hurts, right? Yeah, you know. And um, any recommendations around, obviously, when you're pushing that higher end of caffeine and, you know, athletes will feel good in the, in the very short term, at, uh, you know, kind of starting to tread that line at that upper end of intake, some adverse symptoms. Is there uh, strategies you have or do you find your athletes perform fine with, you know, that kind of five to six milligrams per kg? 
Man, it's crazy because the six milligrams per kg, five to six milligrams per kg is what is consistently the most consistent performance enhancer in the research. But the the side effects of that and how you feel and the jitteriness and uh, if you take that even after noon sometimes, uh, that, that can really have a profound negative effect on sleep. Uh, and so much of the, the caffeine research is short term. It's, you know, what happened in this crossover study. Exactly. Uh, we had this... You know, it doesn't tell you. And how was their sleep, you know, for the last of the three months when they kept doing this? Um, so I think you have to be careful. And um, there's a ton of research now just on showing that we have uh, different levels of responders to caffeine. There's there's a – we should probably be moving more towards kind of like individual response to caffeine. And so I would say for anyone, you want to start with the lowest effective dose where you can – uh, that, that you can you tolerate easily and still feel a boost in your training. Um, so, you know, starting around like that three milligrams per kg and seeing what you get out of that uh, an hour prior to, to maybe your only, only your hard training sessions so you can avoid some of the habituation to it uh, is, is not a bad idea. And then only going higher if, if there's not a benefit because sometimes I think the uh, the, the, the potential negatives can, can offset any potential benefits. So what I typically recommend is, um, you know, start around three milligrams per kg an hour before your, your hardest training sessions. So maybe no more than say two or three times per week. So, I mean, you've got four days where you're not taking pre-workout caffeine. Uh, you can still have it in your daily life, you know, uh, a cup of coffee here and there's, that's no problem. Uh, and then as a general rule, try not to go above in any given day, six milligrams per kg. Uh, and then, of course, adjust based on individual results. Um, and I would probably try to do your training sessions, say, before 2 or 3 p.m. on days you're going to take caffeine. Yeah, great advice. And, I mean, as your lifters get more elite, is it, you know, do you have a preference more to supplemental form so you can kind of keep tabs on the dose versus, like, just a cup of coffee? Or is it, uh, you know, is it all kind yeah, of I, a wash? Or? I typically like just like actual caffeine tablets or, or a pre-workout because um, trying to drink enough coffee to get to that supplemental level before you train. <laughs> now you got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, you know, everything off, right? exactly. Like, it, like, there can be some practical concerns there. Um, but, sure. you know, I think it's up to the individual. Um, you know, and coffee does have other things in it besides caffeine. It's um, there is there's some epidemiological data which shows coffee is actually um, relatively healthy as far as what we know at this stage. But there's, there's a lot to that. You know, epidemiological data is not cause and effect. You know, uh, that, that could be that people who drink a lot of coffee also engage socially more often. You know, Dan John, I heard mention that. He was like, well, you think about it, you know, both wine and coffee tend to be shown to extend life and improve quality of life. Is that just because those are social drinks? You know, do they have more friends? Because that, that could be a confounding factor. Absolutely. Uh, or it could be, you know, the various antioxidants that are in wine and coffee and, and has not much to do with the caffeine itself. It's, it's tough to know. But, um, but yeah, for purely the performance side of it, I think it's, it's probably easier to know how much you're taking when you're taking caffeine pills or pre-formulated supplements. Uh, because coffee can vary quite wildly depending on how the uh, how it's produced. Um, yep. But yeah, caffeine and, and creatine are your big performance supplements. Some more areas, obviously, in the study was about caffeine intake. And of course, the, oh, know, yeah. the mean daily caffeine consumption for the men there was around 320, uh, about 250 yep. for the women. But I was really, uh, you know, my eyes started to pop out when I read that their top end for the men was 
almost 1400 milligrams in a day, which is a pretty massive dose. Uh, can you comment about caffeine intake and, and in your study and in general amongst bodybuilders? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, how accurate some of the numbers are, I mean, it's a bit open to interpretation, but there's, there's okay. no, there's no doubt that these people were consuming a high caffeine intake um, that the bodies, bodybuilders tend to do. I mean, black coffee is a, is a staple in, in many bodybuilders diets to, to just get them through the day, which is to give them that little bit of a stimulant boost when their calories are low to keep them sort of going on. And I think people sort of replace um, other things in their life with, uh, with, with caffeine. So they can't go to a bar or anything like that. So they, they go to Costa's and they have their, their coffees in that way just for as a social thing. But I mean, there's obviously a, a stimulant side of thing. There's, there's this idea that they, it might in some way be, have a lipoic effect Mm-hmm. whether it does or not probably not um, and then there's a training boost so caffeine does reduce your um, rate of perceived exertion so the, these are some benefits of caffeine certainly if we have too much it's ergolytic those high amounts definitely ergolytic but I think in a lot of cases some people don't realize actually how much caffeine they're actually consuming and if I paint a picture for you you can quite easily see how you could get a high amount when you wake up in the morning you have a couple of fat burners which might contain 250 megs of caffeine in them. That's that's not uncommon. You maybe have a black coffee, then you um, you head off to your work. You might have another cup of coffee, or you might have a couple of um, green teas or something like that that's got caffeine in it. You then take your uh, your pre workout supplement. You then take your uh, your fat burners along with that as well, and then you uh, you maybe have some energy drinks through the day. And before you know it you can get a really, really high caffeine content. I mean, some of these intro workouts that people take, again, can have um, can have caffeine in them. And I don't necessarily think a lot of people were quite aware of um, how high their caffeine contents were. Oh, yeah, the, the other thing is, um, like, things like um, beverages, so um, diet colas, uh, diet pop. So some of these things have got caffeine in them as well, and... Bodybuilders seem to be in this cohort, anyway, quite high consumers of, of these sort of beverages as well. So you've got accounts of people having, like, say, six cans of Pepsi Max a day, or like, wow, uh, yeah. I mean, these are ones that just spring to mind off the top of my head because obviously you remember that yeah, for uh, sure. Well, I I, re- I recently had Dr. Ian uh, Dunikin on from in from Australia, and he worked with the uh, rugby team out in the western side of Australia, and. You know, he had a lot of his, and the team that they analyzed, the guys weren't even aware of the, you know, they were adding, it was a powdered form of caffeine. So, you know, if they figured, well, if one scoop's what they want us to take, then, you know, three, <laughs> three, three must be better. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. obviously, having massive amounts of caffeine, much more than they realize, the impacts, the trickle-down effects on sleep, quality after sure. that. So, uh, it is it is a pretty important one. And for yourself, you know, whether in the study or even, you know, just in, in competing yourself, do you find more of like coffee intake for, for caffeine beverages or versus, you know, taking uh, supplements with exact dosages of caffeine? I mean, I, for, I can only sort of relate this to myself here, but I, I sort of realized a long time ago that if I consume caffeine past around about three o'clock, then I can't sleep. So that means for, for me that a whole load of pre-workout supplements are just off the table completely, unless I train at the weekend in the afternoon. So I try to avoid this stuff, but I would just usually, um, if I was going to have one before a train, I'd probably just go for like a a strong cup of coffee or, or something like that. I mean, a strong cup of coffee can give you around about three mix 
per kilogram of body weight dosage to around about two megs. And that sort of dosage can be enough to give you a performance enhancing effect. So yeah, that that's sort of my experience with it. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're in the U S you got the tray into there at Starbucks, so you, yeah, you can definitely get up to six, 750 milligrams, but, um, oh, I, I don't, I don't yeah, think wow. that, I don't think that size is available in the, <laughs> in, in the UK or Canada yet. You know, you wrote a great paper about pregame caffeine use in Australian rules football um, and its impact on sleep. So before we maybe jump into the findings, can you lay the foundation for folks by maybe explaining how caffeine works and how is this potentially impacts, you know, sleep and sleep pressure? Yeah, no problem. So the paper was actually not for Australian rules football. It was super rugby, which oh, is rugby union. Super rugby, yep. That's that's okay. The, the, <laughs> I don't want people jumping up and down going crazy. So, so yeah, the, the kind of um, caffeine as we all know, is, is a great substance and, and we all love it and we like to have it in the morning. And the reason why we have it in the morning is because of its alerting effects um, and basically improves cognition and Im- improves performance as well. And that's been documented in the scientific literature in athletes. However, it does vary. So some athletes report that it does give them a, a benefit in terms of cognition and physical performance. Other athletes say it does not. One of the problems there is that there is no standardized test across the literature. So you might get a group of cyclists who cycle faster over a 1K sprint time. And then you might get a group of taekwondo athletes who may have better kick and accuracy or maybe have no improvement in the kick and accuracy when hitting pads. So the standardized in test is, is pretty uh, variable uh, between the different studies. So that's that's one challenge that we do have. Um and so caffeine is used then, obviously, as a performance enhancer or an ergogenic aid, as it's called. And we see this in the workplace. It's consumed. It's probably one of the most legal psychoactive drugs that we have out there. I think so, yeah. Number one for sure. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we all like to have it. But we also know as well that later in the day or the more we consume throughout the day, that it does affect sleep. And what happens is what's called the pharmacokinetics of caffeine. So in gen- general, when someone consumes caffeine in form of coffee coca-cola type drinks or you know even in, in energy drinks as that type of thing energy drinks yeah um no dose tablets whatever it might be it takes roughly about an hour to peak into the system then it's got an, a half-life of approximately four hours and then it's gone out of system in eight hours so for somebody who keeps drinking coffee throughout the day maybe when they're working nine to five if you have your last cup of coffee at five o'clock in the evening that will kind of peak somewhere around six to seven. However, if you keep having coffee throughout the day, that peak may be pushed forward. And so if you have that coffee around, we'll use, say for argument's sake, five, it peaks at around six, half six p.m. It's going to be at least half 10 to 11 p.m. before you can initiate sleep. And so that's what we know about how, how basically caffeine acts within the system in, in, in a human. Now, the foundation for this paper is we knew that... Um, Caffeine was being used um, as an ergogenic aid in Super Rugby, and but we didn't really know to what extent it was being used, and we didn't know to what extent it had an effect on sleep and recovery, and so that was really the foundation or the precursor to commencing the study with the Super Rugby team. And when you guys looked at the the caffeine intake, what were guys typically consuming before a game? You know, what was the range there? Yeah, so this is um, this is pretty interesting. Um, so it's probably just worth mentioning in the for the methods for this paper, we did take saliva test. We did take saliva samples from the team members, approximately um, 
two hours before the game and we took uh, post-game samples as well. And so we can use saliva instead of taking blood, which is which correlates well to blood samples. So we can use that in lieu of taking blood. A little handier, right? And uh, yeah, far more easier as well for the research <laughs> sure. team to collect the data. Um, so what we did find was that there was a discrepancy of what was reported and what was consumed. So for example, most players... Um, there was 23 players in the squad that went to play the game that night. So typically 15 players will be on the field and you'll have um, the remaining eight players as interchanges or substitutions that can come onto the, onto the field during the game. And the game lasts about 80 minutes. Game kicked off around 7 p.m. that evening. So it's quite a late game or an evening slash night game. Only nine of the players reported that they consumed caffeine and the main sources of caffeine consumption were homebrew coffee, make a home yourself in a plunger or drip uh, feed, cappuccinos, so typical coffees you get in a coffee shop, yep. tea, cola drinks, no-dose tablets, and chocolate. They were the main sources of caffeine. And most players reported consuming the caffeine between 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening with only a few reporting consuming caffeine after 6 p.m. in the evening. So most most athletes were uh, consuming the caffeine actually between 6 and 12. That's where most of the the percentage of the, of, of the caffeine consumption uh, fell. However, when we did look at what was reported and what really happened, we did find another discrepancy. So we found a significant increase in caffeine uh, change from pre-game to post-game. So, and I was in about 17 players. So even though nine consumed that the only con- nine reported to consume caffeine, actually 17 of them had elevated levels of caffeine compared to pre-game. So double and or so not reporting uh, accurately, is that it? Yeah, not accurately. And when we dug into that, we actually found out why. And this was very interesting. And this was probably an oversight in, in from us beforehand, is we didn't understand to the extent that pre-workout was being consumed. So pre-workout powders are generally consumed, um, you know, uh, prior to a game or a training session. Um, and these things are very heavily dosed in caffeine. And so they weren't actually counting this as a, as a caffeine consumption. So it's pretty interesting that number one, players were not informed that these pre-workout drinks had caffeine. Number two is there was a caffeine strategy, but it was verbalized and the players were told it wasn't actually administered. And we know men were were not very good at listening to things. (laughs) And so we get told to take one scoop. One scoop is good, two scoops is better, and three scoops were gonna turn into a superhero. And so that's what was happening. People were just basically consuming this um, as much as they liked and no one was really having an oversight on it. And so that that contributed to the significant increase in caffeine from pre-game to post-game. So quite a significant increase in all the players. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting when I was reading your paper because it's definitely something that I see a lot um, with athletes over here, you know, working with recreational elite pros that oftentimes, you know, completely unaware of not only that there's caffeine in their pre-workout supplement, but even the amounts of caffeine that might be in there. And so, Ian, what, what kind of yeah. effects then on sleep duration, sleep efficiency? What's going on with the, with the players after this intake? Yeah, so that was kind of the, the key thing we wanted to look at. We wanted to see, you know, what was happening here with the effect of caffeine on sleep. So what we did find is, and in the papers where we report the sort of the pregame nights, what was happening. And we looked at six measures. 
We looked at sleep latency, which is basically the time it takes to fall asleep. We looked at time at sleep onset, the time you do fall asleep. We looked at sleep duration, which is self-explanatory, how long you were asleep. Wake after sleep onset. So this is the number of minutes you wake up throughout the night. And then from those measures, um, sorry, there's one final measure here, which was time at wake. So time you wake up in the morning. And from those five measures, then we calculate a measure of quality, which is referred to as sleep efficiency. And so what we did find that was leading into the game, that sleep latency decreased. So players fell asleep quicker. We found that players on average went to bed approximately between 11 and a half, 11 every night. Um, for sleep duration, they progressively increased sleep on the nights before the game. So we think that athletes are in Super Rugby are using the days beforehand to kind of sleep bank or sleep optimize. However, we did find that the increase in sleep uh, was driven from the training schedule. So basically, they didn't have to be in as early the next morning. Therefore, they actually slept longer the next day and got more sleep. Interesting. So that's the, that's the kind of pre-game factors, which is which is very interesting. And we found this in a lot of other athletes too. But the effect of what it had on the um, uh, after the game is even more interesting. So they fell asleep, you know, relatively, you know, easily after the game. However, they did not fall asleep on average till half two in the morning. And some players didn't go to bed as late as half eight the next morning on a uh-huh. Sunday. Yeah. And four players did not achieve any sleep whatsoever. So having so, a good time after the game then? Well, there's a number of factors <laughs> Potentially. There. There's, the, there's, yeah, there's the increase in the caffeine. There's post-game. Um, so these guys don't finish till nine, half nine. Obviously, you get shower, change, maybe some recovery, have a meal. There's also post-game media. Um you know, and then maybe a couple of drinks or some socializing happening afterwards as well. Um, now, that all resulted in a quite a significant reduction in sleep duration, which uh, basically results in a sleep debt, which then took a number of days to recover. So it took an extra uh, additional three days before athletes were back up to the amount of same sleep they were having before the game. So basically what you see is when you look at the graphs is you see that sleep duration is significantly reduced after the game. So you get this kind of peaking before the game up a mountaintop down into a valley of sleep duration and then trying to climb back out again and indeed with some of the measures that we took over this season we found similar patterns of sleep and wake throughout the season in, a, in some other studies that we've looked at so caffeine most notably affected sleep latency after the game even though it wasn't too bad but it did affect it it affected um sleep duration and it also had a decrease in sleep efficiency or a quality measure as well so it's not the only thing that's affecting sleep after the game but we do believe it's one of the major factors that is associated with it Now, talk to me about decaf coffee because I get a lot of questions from clients and athletes around the negative impacts potentially of processing methods that are used with decaf coffee. You know, what methods do you guys use with your decaf, and you know, is that even something people should consider as a problem with other decafs? Um, I don't think that people should um, shy away from decafs whatsoever if if they're uh, looking for a decaffeinated coffee. The technology that goes into decaffeinated process at this point in our history is really impressive. So. Um, I, uh, 
I've heard nothing but great things about uh, Mike Strumpf, who's over at Swiss Water Decaf in, in Vancouver. And uh, all the coffees that we use are from Swiss Water, and they're really prominent in the specialty coffee industry. Um, so there are, um, I think, historically some, some contentious ways of decaffeinating coffee. Gotcha. Um, but the way in which the specialty coffee industry has gone about it um, is quite ingenious and uh, quite safe, and, and I don't think there's any reason to shy away from it. So. Um, I, I looked into this about a year and a half ago because before that I, I really wasn't sure. And um, I'll try and simply explain the sort of process, uh, which is that uh, I think what happens is that uh, they take sort of raw green beans and they soak it in, um, in, a, in a sort of vat of water in a way that sort of extracts literally all of the flavor compounds from it. Um, and then it goes through, I think, uh, sort of a carbon-rich filtration system, which just isolates um, the sort of caffeine molecule and then removes it. And then they have a way of uh, removing the caffeine from those cartridges so that they are reusable. Uh, but now you have this sort of uh, green, coffee-rich uh, water solution um, that they will use for processing. So. They've produced the green coffee-rich solution, and now any coffee that they want to decaffeinate, they put it into this green coffee-rich solution, which has you know, all the flavor compounds of coffee to their knowledge, um, minus caffeine. Yeah. And so the caffeine is then drawn out of this new product, this new raw green bean put into the solution, but the flavor compounds outside of caffeine are retained. And so they cycle awesome. out the caffeine in that, into that, uh, the solution and that new uh, raw green bean has no caffeine, but it has all of its inherent flavors maintained. Well, that's really good to know because it's definitely something that, um, again, for clients or athletes playing games or training in the evening, you know, the half-life of caffeine can extend into the into the wee hours of the night and impact sleep and things like that. So mm -hmm. for people who do want to have some coffee later in the evening, great to know that the decafs are going to give them still some great flavor as well as, uh, you know, without the caffeine hit. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support, and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S., sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories, so you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org, that's athleteevolution.org, and of course you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local book sellers. Awesome, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at DrBubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.